Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Hey everybody, CJ here. Welcome to episode 105 of the Dangerous History Podcast. And for this episode, I have something cool for you, something different. I have a conversation between myself and Kristaps Andresens all the way from Latvia. Kristaps is the host of the Eastern Border Podcast, which is about the history of the Soviet Union and what life was like behind the Iron Curtain during the Cold War era. He's also a comrade of mine over at the Dark Myths Podcast Collective. You can check that out at darkmyths.org. And I was very happy to have him on to talk with him about a lot of the stuff he covers in his show. I think it's a very interesting show. I personally am a regular listener to it. And I think you should definitely check it out. He's covered all sorts of interesting aspects of life under the Soviet system. Everything from, from childhood to pop culture to sports and things like the Chernobyl incident and the Soviet space program and all kinds of other things. Very interesting show. And we had a great conversation, went down all sorts of tangents and what have you. And I'm very happy to share it with you. Uh, but before we do that, normally this is the point where I would be thanking people who have signed up recently to support the show on Patreon, but unfortunately I have to report that there have been no new Patreon pledge signups since my last Dangerous History Podcast episode. So I have no one to thank here, but remember, if you want to help out the show on a regular recurring basis and get a little something back for doing so, go over to patreon.com slash profcj and sign up to support the show. And if you support the show for at least a dollar per episode, and more is certainly welcome, but for just a minimum of a dollar per episode, I will thank you by name in the next show that I make after you've signed up. And in addition, you will have access to special bonus Dangerous History podcast episodes available there that are found nowhere else. Also, before I get into the meat of this episode, I just want to remind you all that I will be at Porkfest the Porcupine Freedom Festival in Lancaster, New Hampshire this summer. Unfortunately, I'll only be there for the last couple of days, but I will be speaking there at high noon on Saturday, June 25th, and my topic will be Applying Guerrilla Methods Beyond War. We're going to look at some of the characteristics and approaches that successful guerrilla fighters have taken in history and how those things can have utility even in fields of endeavor that have seemingly little or no resemblance to violent armed conflict. So if you can make it, I hope to see you there. And now I present to you my conversation with Kristaps Andresens from the Eastern Border Podcast.
Christops, welcome to the Dangerous History Podcast. Thanks for coming on today. Thanks for having me. Uh, greetings, comrades. Yeah. So you are the the man behind the Eastern Border Podcast, and if you wouldn't mind telling us a bit about you and kind of your background and, and your show and what your show is all about and why you started doing it. Oh, wow. Um, it's actually kind of an interesting story here. I'm a man who lives in Riga, Latvia. Well, currently I live in Lodz, Latvia. Uh, I have a master's in Western philosophy and a bachelor's in Soviet history, and I'm doing my PhD right now in political science. It's complicated. I'm 26 years old. And uh, I'm making my show about the history of the Soviet Union and the Eastern Bloc in general. Sometimes I go a bit far more back in earlier times, too. But the idea is that I use academical sources of history, but then I have this hobby of just collecting stories from people, you know, the real, the real things out there, uh, like the stories from the people, how it used to be, what was life like, the oral, oral tradition of history. Mm-hmm. Because there's a lot of interest, interesting stuff which doesn't get put into, into the books, and I really want to convey the feel of how, how it's like here and how was it like here. And actually, it all started because of another podcast that I listened to. I listened to Slate's Political Gabfest because I'm a politics freak, as you might have noticed. And they had this discussion there. I don't remember when exactly, but it was a more than a year ago because my podcast almost a year year old. And they had this so-called Russian expert on that show. And the expert was a lady who had lived in Moscow for six months, and then she had worked for Russian Times, and she just. Sp- Promoted all sorts of nonsense, and I was just infuriated because apparently that podcast is extremely popular in the United States of America. So I decided to, you know, tell the true story, tell it how we feel like it's here, and and kind of it grew from there. I wanted to tell the people's history of the Soviet Union, of the Eastern Bloc, and to show to people that you know, hey, Baltic countries are a place. Latvia is a place. We have our own history. It it exists, and it's way more complicated and interesting. I think. Especially when I'll get to the World War II, then it's going to be extremely controversial and interesting because, well, for one, one of my grandfathers fought for the Nazis, another one fought for the Red Army, and then kind of the one who fought for the Nazis, he kind of volunteered because all of his family was beforehand killed by the Soviets who occupied us first. And Hitler was sort of a liberator here, in a way. He deceived us, he tricked us, he lied to us, but... That's one of the extreme complexities in this area that not everything is just clear-cut and black and white. And some people call this place Bloodlands because what's been going on here? So uh, it's a complex place with a very complex history. And I think that people have a lot of misconceptions about how we live and what Soviet Union was really like. Because all of these movies where it's depicted as a big monolithic block of fanatical individuals where it completely wasn't like that. We didn't enjoy it as much. So... I'm just trying to show the humane side, of the other side of the Cold War, which is my, my tagline, if you will. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, um, by the way, I did an episode a while back about um, Operation Keelhaul and um, what was his name? the uh, General Vlasov, right? Was that the, the, Soviet, Vlasov, yeah. the Soviet general who was basically – trying to, because he was so pissed off at Stalin, he was trying to kind of build his own, with some German support, build his own anti-communist, you know, Russian army to then turn against Stalin, and 
Uh, yeah, but that was also a tool of propaganda. And about that army, the most interesting part was that all of the prisoners of war from the Soviet side, when they actually came back to the Soviet Union, were sent to gulags. Right, right. Because they were considered traitors. And Soviets had to employ uh, KGB squads with machine guns behind their own troops to shoot yeah. them if they if they come back. So, yeah. it's The Soviet Union was a... There's a saying in Russian which basically uh, is um, which basically uh, is umom Russiyu nepanyach, which basically means you can't understand Russia with your mind. <laughs> you have to understand with your soul. Russia, Russia is a feeling. Soviet Union was also a feeling. It, it's more more a feeling, and people just acted irrationally and completely weird compared to everything else. And also, while while doing while I'm doing this podcast, I have learned so much about the United States culture. Which is also sometimes strange and amazing to me. So I'm learning as much as I'm trying to teach someone. Yeah, yeah. This is this is a weird country that I live in, and I guess kind of like the way the USSR was. It's a country that's so huge and has so many different groups within it. You know, so many different ethnic and cultural groups, and it's very different from one geographical region to the next. That I mean, it's it's really hard for anyone to say that they know American culture because it's really Dozens, if not hundreds, of, of distinct cultures. But makes it a lot of fun to learn about. I, I for one, I'm a fan of the United States. I, I, so far, uh, actually, um, actually, the people from the States with whom I've spoken to have been much friendlier than, for example, people from, from some other countries in Western Europe. Hmm. People, I, I have nothing against the American, Americans whatsoever. I really, really enjoy people from there. And I hope to visit you guys one day. I mean, right. you're posting all over the internet how great your country is. I kind of want to go and see myself. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it's like anywhere else, you know. There, there's a lot of good people and a lot of not so good people, and kind of a lot of people in the middle. But um, you know, it's it's certainly better than some other parts of the world. But uh, well, at, le- at least I haven't received death threats for my podcast from Americans. You know. All right. Well, that's that's something good. We can take pride in that. We, we don't threaten to kill the podcaster from Latvia. Well, um, you get a very different perspective looking at any country's history when you do what you do in your podcast a lot, which is look at the social and cultural history and kind of how average people experienced things. I mean, that was a, a big revolution in, in the way American historians did American history, kind of starting back in the 1960s when they started to look at kind of regular people and how they lived and how they experienced history. And it's very, very different from what you get when you do the kind of traditional, you know, just looking at the presidents and the kings and, you know, the, the fancy people at the top and what laws they're passing and whatever. Um, you're only getting a very small part of the story when you focus on that. Yeah, uh, but uh, those things are also really important. Oh, I sure, mean, uh, sure. As I'm a huge fan of history, obviously, but um, – and, and as we all, I, I've been inspired by Dan Carlin and this, but – I just think it's kind of interesting. Uh, for me, I started thinking about this when I was listening to Dan Carlin's Punic Wars and he was going with his how it's like to fight an elephant with a spear thing. Mm. And then I really thought about this because, you know, it, it kind of matters a lot because if we would be living in medieval period, we probably wouldn't be on the top echelons about, which the, about whom the history is written. So yeah. it's kind of... The story of the people, and the story of the people tends to get really interesting. I, I'd say I'd say the story of the people gets more interesting than the story of kings right about 
at the end of the Thirty Years' War. Because you know what? If you give your peasants rifles, because you have to have peasants with rifles to win war, muskets. Oh, sorry. Mm-hmm. Uh, if, you give pe- if you give your peasants a bunch of muskets, then they get a bunch of rights too. Yeah. And, and then it becomes interesting if you don't rely on the nobility to wage your wars anymore or mercenaries. Yeah, yeah, very true. So tell us a little bit. Uh, obviously, it's a, it's a huge topic with lots of you know, different, different groups that you could talk about, but just – Kind of in in broad strokes, what was life like for sort of the average person, if if there was such a thing as the average person, in the wonderful workers' paradise Marxist utopia? This is a book written by um, one of my professors in the university. It's kind of a popular science book called Latvia of Past Years. It's about Soviet stuff, and there are a lot of good things in there with photos. And one of the jokes that explains how People lived in extremely short terms like – it goes like this. Soviet, Soviet people can be separated in two groups, the red ones and the black ones. The black ones drive around in black Volgas, eat black caviar and buy stuff from the black end, you know, the, the backdoor stuff. The red ones, well, in the red days of the calendar, they go to the red square waving their red flag. <laughs> Uh, there are also this, this joke about six paradoxes of communism, which I want to find because I am not – I have to translate all of this to English too. So I, I know the joke in Russian, but I kind of need the text in front of me. Oh, yeah. Great. Here it is. <clears throat> six basic paradoxes of socialism. Everybody works, but there's nothing in the stores. There's nothing in the stores, but everyone has everything. <laughs> everyone has everything, but everyone's unsatisfied. No one's satisfied, but everyone's voting for Everyone's voting for, but nobody works. Nobody works, but there's no there's no unemployment. Right. <laughs> it it worked that way because uh, life for this common Soviet citizen was like this. It was there was this party mandated official life, communist morale, shiny happy things as happiness is mandatory. Right. Um, and and then there was this other part, which basically was that you know all the food that's produced, all the good stuff, it goes to the army. There's privileged class, the nomenclature, which is essentially nobility, and the common folk just goes to their factory and tries to figure out, hey, hmm, my, I would really love to have a color TV in my home. How to get one? It costs insane amounts of money. Well, now if I if I'll steal enough of stuff from the factory I work in, then trade it with some other guys, then 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 go to my grandma's place where the grandpa makes makes uh, moonshine, and then if I gather that one and I go to the the port and figure some things out, then I might actually be able to get one. It was all about scheming around and doing these crafty things and growing your own food and trying to trick the Soviet government in, in any way or form, at least over here. And these people were actually suffering from the lack of stuff in the stores. And, and you know what? You couldn't go to church openly. You, you couldn't celebrate all sorts of dates. Um, it was very restrictive. But the amazing part is, and, and like you can read this all in history books, like how it was oppressive and all that stuff. And that's the official data. What's not told in history books, which I try to do on my show, is to explain how people dealt with these issues. Because that's where the famous Soviet do-it-yourself attitude comes in. I mean, when, when MacGyver arrived in the early 90s over here, uh, all the older generation were actually watching that show seriously and taking notes because <laughs> it might be useful. Okay, so it was it was uh, it was a life, but people had fun. People tried to have as much fun as possible. They weren't dedicated to the Soviet Union, and it was an interesting time because the Soviet Soviet government didn't care about you at all. 
in the good sense and in the bad sense. In the good sense, it's that you know you could do things in the black market way and smuggle things around. But in the bad sense, for example, you you could go to the army and there was a five percent attrition rate at every military exercise. That means if five percent of all the, all the conscripts died, it's it's fine. No one will get into trouble for this, for example. And uh, also the the dreadful atmosphere of denunciation. That's that's one of the most major aspects of the Soviet life. Because uh, KGB didn't, didn't work like your NSA. They didn't observe people directly. There was this KGB office. And, you know, there's a... Okay, let, let, let's just imagine there's a village of, say, 15 people, 10 people. Let's, let's use round numbers. So uh, there's a KGB office that's not in the village. But you, you kind of have to observe those 10 people and find out what's going on. So you find out that one of those people has, a, has some sort of a connection... Like his cousin in some other city has been printing out illegal newspapers. For that, the cousin and you and all of your family, basically all the direct family, would be just sent out to gulags in prison and got into a lot of trouble. But instead, KGB goes to this person and says, hey, you observe your neighbors and you write reports to, to us and then we won't do anything to you. So this poor guy, he writes his reports and then the guy's or ladies for whom the reports are written get called to the KGB and are given the very same offer. And rarely, kind of rarely, someone is actually sent away and terrible things happen to them, but there's always this sense of dread and everybody's made complacent in this. You, you kind of, there was a lot of trust issues because there were people you could trust and honor. Uh, it was an honor culture, basically, because honor was extremely important in these conditions when everyone's living in this panopticon of the sense of big brother is watching you, but it's your neighbor, it's your friend. Everyone's kind of everyone at any moment can denounce each other, and especially in the foreign trips. That overwhelming atmosphere of dread and not being able to quite trust everyone um, is, is a major major point of lives in the Soviet Union, I think. So, have you read books like uh, 1984 by George Orwell and? Um, some of the animal other, farm, yeah, 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 and and other other books in that sort of dystopian totalitarian uh, genre. Do you, do you think that those books accurately capture kind of the the mood and the atmosphere and the experience, at least when when the Soviet system was at its at its worst? Oh yeah, definitely. Okay, definitely. Um, and the interesting part, which I which I mentioned on my show at one point, is that Animal Farm, together with 1984, was actually published in the Soviet Union at one point. In the yeah. Baltics and Latvia, uh, because it was uh, Animal Farm technically would be called Divnieku Farm in Latvian, but it was published under a different name called Divnieku Sata, which would be which would be translated back into some sort of animal household. Hmm. And as the guys in the Arts Council, imagine your country having an Arts Council, which determines whether or not this Nicki Minaj video passes the bar or not. No, decadent capitalism, throw away. <laughs> Yeah. And then, and then, stuff, and, and, and they, but basically, those people weren't of the most educated kind, they were of the most loyal kind. Sometimes they really banned things, but there are ways how to get, uh, as they say, <clears throat> get crap past the radar. So uh, that was published in some 2,000 copies and sold out instantly. And I read one of those copies when I was a kid. Uh, but obviously, afterwards, smarter people checked it, and that was forbidden as well. I, you know? I wonder if they, if they passed it off through the censors by saying, oh, this is an agriculture manual, you know, <laughs> this, is a, this is about how to write, raise healthier livestock, and they, and they looked at it and said, oh, okay, yeah, we'll publish that. 
No, it was more like, you know, there's a, they have this official list of names of prohibited books. And this is kind of similar to one of them, but it's not exactly the same. Ah, well. And no one in the Soviet Union was very diligent or interested in working really hard except a few fanatics. So I can understand the people in the Arts Council just also going like, ah, I have to do some work here. Well, is, is this on the list? It's not on the list. Ah, stamp it. Yeah. Whatever. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, it's one of the one of the silver linings, I guess, is that those those giant oppressive totalitarian bureaucracies, institutionally, they they are kind of dumb and clumsy as as yeah. oppressive as they might be. Yeah, we're we're starting and, uh, to feel some of that here in the states, especially lately. Well, it it was really really hardcore at Stalin's era, and then later at Andropov at one point. But Andropov died really quickly. But Khrushchev and Brezhnev and all of those people were busy doing their high-up things to care about mass suppressions. And mass suppressions weren't really cool after Stalin anymore. So you just couldn't <laughs> send tons of people to Gulag. Yeah. Didn't they, with uh, starting with Khrushchev, didn't they switch increasingly to um, using diagnoses of mental illness to... Andropov invented that. Oh, it okay. was Andropov's period. He made a whole system uh, because of this. Yeah, literally, you could you could just get sent to insane asylum for everything. Yeah, I remember hearing somewhere it may have been on your show, may have been somewhere else that in the um, in the Soviet mental illness diagnostic manual, whatever it was called, they actually had diagnoses that were things like denying the greatness of the Soviet system and things like like they could literally yeah. Yeah. diagnose you with that. <laughs> It shows you how, you know, if you if you take away one of their tools in the toolbox, then they'll, they'll just find another one and be a little bit more slick about it. It seems like there's this there's this back and forth game between the people trying to find ways around the system and and, and ways to kind of cheat the system for their own benefit, you know, kind of humanity and freedom expressing themselves against the system. And then the system kind of pushing back, you know, the system kind of learns in its own its own clumsy way and, and tries to find new ways to control the people and everything. Yeah, but at the same time, um, I want to read you some, it's going to be a bit long excerpt, but it's the 58, 58, uh, I don't know, paragraph of the criminal law of the, of the Soviet Union, which is one of the most dreadful things out there. I'm going to find it quickly. Essentially, the KGB at its height and at all of these times, was, there was a saying about the KGB that, you know what, you are guilty, but we will find exactly to what are you guilty about. And the 58th paragraph is famous because that contained uh, essentially crimes against the Soviet regime, uh, the counter-revolutionary activity, not reporting of counter-revolutionary activity, being related to someone who commits counter-revolutionary activity, all of these things. And that 58th paragraph was the one you can find anyone with at least something in it. Everyone was kept guilty all the time. So uh, when, when someone says to you, you have nothing to fear, if you, you only need to fear if you're innocent, um, I, I'm still not trusting any government who, who says that because really you can be found guilty. They just need to look real hard. Yeah, that that's something that I find very troubling as a trend here in the states. I mean, as of right now, I mean they're they're not rounding up people in mass for saying the wrong things or believing the wrong things, but they're increasingly surveilling everybody all the time. And it seems like they're they're building up this apparatus that's just kind of waiting there for a person who's 
you know, even worse than some of the clowns we've had lately to to come in and, and really start cracking down on dissenters and things like that. And I just I find it very ominous because a lot of the American people seem to just be clueless to the possibility for things to go bad. Yeah, a lot of a lot of these things are seenable also here in the, the Baltics and the Europe in general. I mean, look at the Hungarian government or the Polish government. Um, and those people don't understand that these means of the law, which such like you, you can institute some elements for your own safety, right? But once those elements are instituted, they're really extremely hard to get out of the system. And even if you would support these safety measures right now, if you wait 20 years, then there will be some people who will try to abuse them. Sometimes it's better just to you know, risk it, sacrifice something for your freedoms, I think. Yeah, yeah, I very much agree with that. And so there was enormous difference in kind of what your life was like and how you experienced things, depending on kind of a combination of, of where you were in the, the, the social pyramid of the Soviet system and where you were geographically within the Soviet Union. So can you talk a little bit more about the differences in experience between kind of some different groups there on the far side of the Iron Curtain? Oh, yeah, sure. Um, for one, let's, let, I'll start with the geographical sense. We had it tough here in the Baltics, but we were kind of one of the more well-supported and well-provided uh, place in the Soviet Union because we were the most westernmost part of the Soviet Union. And Moscow was very well-supplied, St. Petersburg and the Baltic States. We had it tough with food sometimes with supplies, but the, the guys who live in Siberia, like even now, no one cares about Siberia because all the money gathered there, all the natural, natural resources just get gobbled up to Moscow uh, and are concentrated there and those people don't get much in return. It was really, really, really terrible in Siberia and when those people somehow visited these parts and where we thought we had a trough, they were like stunned about why are we even complaining it was crazy. And it was actually better uh, for the Polish government at the time and the Hungarian one and the East Germans. East Germans were the richest of the Soviet bloc people. And even now, if you look at how they lived, and you can see these comparisons between East and West Germany, uh, they, they, they lived kind of a bleak life in comparison to what you had in the rest of the world. But those... Those guys lived way better than we over here because they were the westernmost part and the Soviet government was really, really concerned about hiding things about appearing better than they were, uh, which is also, by the way, a reason why I kind of don't trust a lot of Western historians when they're talking about the Soviet Union because Western historians have a tendency to just take whatever Soviet government says and what it puts on its documents at face value, even though if there was blatant lies and misinformation everywhere, including the official documents, and there was a lot of stuff going behind those documents. And, and if you were in the nomenclature, and if you, but there were those privileged classes, yeah. For example, if you were a sailor, you could get a lot of stuff in the black market. If, uh, if, you, were in the, for, if you were in the family members of the higher-ups, then you also could, could just uh, shop in the special stores. The differences in, in life quality were immense because it, it was essentially another class of nobility there if we're talking in this vertical sense of, of distribution. So – were the stores all state-owned or were there some kind of private stores or were there private stores but they were technically illegal or what, what was the situation with, with the – No private property whatsoever. 
Forget hmm. about it. What yeah. private property? Uh, you, you didn't even own your own apartment. It was all state-owned. Right. Didn't tell you, you couldn't own a house. You could own a, a thing. The state could give you something as a gift, but it could just take it, take it away just simply. Uh, the state actually mandated, you know, um, as, as, there, as there, was, there was really nothing in the stores. I mean, uh, the people in the call hosts in the countryside, they only got passports in 1981. They couldn't even leave their districts. Imagine if you couldn't leave your state in the United States of America, not even the state, your own county. Mm-hmm. It was like that. If you were living in Kolkhoz, not in the cities. And as, as the, there, was, there was this lack of food, so people were trying to live, uh, to, to grow some food for themselves in their backyards, essentially. And the Soviet government even limited the amount of land that can be used to grow your own stuff there. Everything was under control. Private, private enterprises, some sort of form of those, appeared only in very late Soviet Union, like 1986, 1987, 1988. Before that, no private property whatsoever. Just none. No private stores. Everything is state-owned. You know what I, f- I find very interesting about that, and especially when, when you talk about how uh, they even tried to limit people growing their own food for their own consumption – I've been doing a series lately. I still have to finish it. I'm going to do at least one more episode on it. But I've been doing a series in recent months about American slavery, about the history of American slavery. And there's a lot of parallels between the way that American slave owners dealt with their slaves and the way most of the masses of the Soviet Union were dealt with in terms of trying to keep them in a state of dependence. Yeah, yeah, this this state of dependency because – the way of free, the way of the reasoning goes, uh, I'm, I'm going to try to put it lightly. I don't want to use uh, difficult terms here, but uh, if if the person is self-sustainable, if he can exist all by himself, he doesn't need the state. And especially if the state is so terrible, the Soviet Union, then why would he need the state? You have to artificially create a situation where you need the state to survive. You see, well, right, right. I think it's kind of it's kind of a good way to put it. Yeah, I've I've been thinking the same things as I've been thinking about uh, my closing episode about the slavery series. I was I was actually going to talk about some of the parallels that I see between um, plantation slavery and kind of just the state in general. And yeah, one of the one of the points I was going to bring up is kind of exactly what you just said that it's a way to make people controllable and keep them in their place is to prevent them from being able to be you know self sufficient and take care of yeah. their own economic and physical needs and all that and there's a similar thing i think going on it's it's not as brutally blatant as as the old communist systems but it's kind of a, a softer version of it in the modern welfare state where it's the same thing where um it's a paternalism to to keep people in their place by kind of bribing them with little little goodies and whatever from the state um, yeah, and, and at the same time, there, all, there was always this, uh, which I find interesting, but in the United States of America, you have also some elements of this so-called civil religion, pledging allegiance to the flag, all these things. Yeah. It's, it's kind of, it's kind of, I find it kind of funny, because over here, we had scientific Marxism classes everywhere, and there were pictures of Stalin and Lenin, and every workplace everywhere has had this little red corner with a bust of Lenin and, and his complete works in the Communist Manifesto. It was essentially a religious, religion-like thing, uh, even though the government had the state atheism, because you are not allowed to choose what you believe in. That also is interesting. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the civic religion here in the United States is 
pretty disturbing, honestly. And a lot of it is not from the actual uh, government directly, you know, in a top-down sense saying, here are the things you have to believe and blah, blah, blah. A lot of it is actually bottom-up for whatever reason. A lot of, you know, here we have, at least in in the legal sense, a separation of church and state and religious freedom. And a lot of churches, not all, but a lot of churches kind of on their own voluntarily uh, preach this very aggressive American nationalism uh, blended in a weird way with Christianity because it would seem like a lot of the message of Christianity would not go along with hardcore aggressive nationalism. So it's it's really, mm. really kind of strange. You You have the civic religion in the secular sense, but then you also have in a lot of the churches here – uh, they'll they'll do things like say the pledge of allegiance in church. It's it's really kind of yeah it's kind of troubling. Um, yeah, it's interesting. But then again, again, well, also here comes one of the nice political jokes, which kind of explains all of this situation. I'm just looking at them in the background. <clears throat> uh, Jerzynski, one of the revolutionaries, is calling Lenin. Uh, Vladimir Ilyich, because they called everyone by the harder names. Vladimir Ilyich, when, when do we shoot the, the, the kulaks? Do we shoot them before or after dinner? <laughs> uh, of course, before dinner. And the dinner, give, it, give the kids, the children uh, of the workers are starving. <laughs> yeah, yeah, pretty Welcome. <laughs> well, it's, it's like... Uh, that's how it kind of works, I suppose. We, we left our own stuff away, and uh, also all of the Soviet humor basically comes from the old Ashkenazi jokes. Uh, most of these jokes were made in Odessa, uh, which was basically the Jewish capital of the Soviet Union, and it all just comes from there. A lot of it. Yeah, it's interesting how groups that are that are oppressed oftentimes develop a really good sense of humor, and and they're able to to mock their rulers. And sometimes get away with it by putting the mockery in a in a joking sort of a way, you know. A, a lot of uh, a lot of the most famous and successful comedians in America to this day are Jewish or African American. You know, groups that historically going going back have been oppressed by somebody or other, and they seem to have a better a better sense of humor in a lot of cases than kind of white Anglo-Saxon Protestant Americans. <laughs> Uh, well, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I don't, this this whole whiteness thing is also kind of weird, which I don't. Which is which is my gripe with the modern day too liberal culture, because you know when I'm sitting on the internet, I'm sort of anonymous, right? And everyone kind of tends to presume that I'm from America when I'm when I'm on my written form. So even I here living in the Baltics, I've heard uh, have heard claims that oh my God, you have all of this white privilege, right. and I'm sitting here and thinking, what kind of a white privilege could I possibly have in a country that's ninety nine point ninety nine percent white, which is just a post Soviet country, uh, which is kind of really poor. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and the United States has always had. Um... It's, it's different there. It's different there. I understand this, but it just. I, I dislike radicalism in all its forms. I dislike radical conservatives, dislike radical liberals. I always think that at the moment when you stop listening to the other side's arguments and you stop the discussion and you just call all of those guys who think like that dumb, then you're a radical and then you're becoming dumb yourself. You always have to listen to the, to the arguments and you have to be polite in your discussion, I think. I, I feel that way at least. I, I don't know. I don't know if that's true. Yeah. I'm I'm just kind of I listen to everybody and then I kind of am anti everybody. So <laughs> that's 
You know, that that's kind of my take that I came to after studying history was kind of I, I never believe or trust anybody who has power or anybody who wants power. Um just just never never trust them, never believe them. T- to me there's always there's always something else going on. There's always an ulterior motive or something something sinister taking place or at least is gonna happen by default, even if the people in charge don't intend it to happen that way. Um Anyway, oh, sorry. Did you have something else to you want to throw in? No, no. I'm just, I'm just looking. I'm, I'm just trying to remember some, some nice political jokes because I, t- I tell these jokes and all these personal stories because uh, they kind of reveal the zeitgeist, mm-hmm. uh, the, the feel of the people, how they felt actually. Sure. Because the, the whole stories may not actually be truthful, uh, but the jokes and everything they just reveal the general sense of how people were thinking back then. So I think it's kind of, kind of interesting. Not all of this. You got me interested in all of this one. In let's see, when I was when I was back in graduate school, I took a few classes having to do with totalitarianism in theory and in practice. Mm. And one of the themes I remember bumping into a bunch of times in the academic literature on that was the idea of the totalitarian state always wants to control all all aspects of of life and of subsistence yeah. and so on and also it wants to either eliminate or or take over and co-opt all intermediate institutions all institutions between the individual and the state so uh family church just sort of you know private clubs and groups and institutions so obviously that that was a big strategy of the communist system so can you tell us a little bit more about how how the communist system either eliminated or or took over and controlled a lot of those those intermediate institutions well uh the first one first thing that i said was uh, i've mentioned two of these methods already one of them was this denunciation like making everyone complacent in this uh the second one in the media was this arts council which was heavy censorship but when it came to religious offices, you technically had freedom of religion, but there were people assigned, for example, watch churches on Sundays. And if you were a party member or you were some sort of a person who worked in, the, in a company and if someone noted – the agent noted that you went into the church, you would be publicly shamed at your workplace. And you could get thrown out of the party. And they had an official uh, magazine called The Godless, Bezbozhnik, which was atheist propaganda stating how uh, all Christians are dumb. Wow, uh, that was that was one of the things, and of course, media control. A lot of that was in, inside of the media because um, I did I did a research on this a while ago. Even though I, I mentioned a lot of jokes and sound, I have this weird accent and I sound like a, a stupid teenager sometimes. I'm, I'm I'm doing some real research. I mean, science people. But um, for example, the Soviet Union tried to actually brainwash people in the sense that science fiction was the official genre of the Soviet Union. It was heavily popularized. And also, I, I looked at children's books because, as all children's books were approved by the arts committee, they were used for propaganda. Because you know what books you read really in, in childhood, especially at that time, influences how you're going to grow up. And they basically ripped off everything. Like I said in one of my shows, we had a rip off of uh, Wizard of Oz, which is called the Wizard of the Emerald, Emerald City here, which is sort of also a pro-communist propaganda thing. And it was always written there that getting something for free uh, and then having something more than someone else and this private enterprise, that, that's kind of evil. It makes you a terrible person. 
And in the private life, uh, which I mentioned in my episode 15 uh, about the Soviet child, uh, oh no, it was episode 14, sorry, episode 14, Love Thy Big Brother, um, it was about how the collective, the, the role of the collective was really enforced in private life. People were expected to actually go to their party higher-ups uh, to, to talk to them about, you know, you have problems in your family life. Oh, no, no, you, you go to your party higher-ups and you discuss this issue. Private life was very, very collectivized. It, it was made... In, in Soviet Union, it was called the so-called private life, essentially. You had none. The thing is, they were trying to push private elements, some sort of privacy uh, outside of the system, make it illegitimate. It, so, was, uh, so, it, was, it was hardcore collectivism. So they, they yeah. would see any, any sort of private group or association, even if it was very, very harmless, not political in any way, very benign, but they would, yeah. they would see that as Those a were only allowed allowed when Gorbachev came to power and that's how perestroika and glasnost started which ruined the which ruined the Soviet government you couldn't even have like any non-state activist organizations at all yeah you couldn't even have like a, a sports club or you know something very no you had to you had to go to the, to the state sports club right state right. funded state organized yeah i remember seeing in a in a documentary about life in cuba that that's the one place where there's where there's a fair amount of private expression allowed is in regard to discussing baseball because Castro likes baseball and so it's the one like realm of cuban life where people are allowed to fiercely argue with each other and uh, you know freely express their opinions or whatever is having to do with baseball and since people aren't allowed to freely express their opinions on on much else there they end up being like way more passionate and animated about baseball than yeah. any, anyone else in the world because they're just displacing all of their all of their emotions and everything into this one place where they can they can speak freely hockey took that place over here in latvia at least hmm. uh, for lithuanians it's, ba- it's basketball for the estonians i don't i don't know estonians are good at skiing but <laughs> latvia loves hockey as much as canada uh, and but even in the sports the soviets cheated in that one because there were two types of teams, either three types of teams, either state-sponsored sports clubs or, uh, or, or just built around factories, state-sponsored teams built around army, state-sponsored teams built around the police. And we had this Riga Dynamo, which has now been reborn because it's a cultural classic. But the central Moscow sports club, uh, CSK, the Central Army Sports Club, basically they just took all the best athletes, stopped it in there. So they were like... Imagine if in the NHL, your, your Washington club or whatever, imagine if Washington, D.C. would just grab all the best athletes from every club ever and made their own super club all the time. <laughs> yeah. That's what happened in the Soviet Union. And, and, and a lot of times we were like really rooting for our own guys right. here in Riga because it was some sort of a resistance. You know, we, we, can't, we can't beat you otherwise, but we at least can root when the Riga team finally through some miracles, beats the Moscow team. And, and for example, I, I mentioned on the show, uh, Miracle on Ice. We were all rooting for the United States here. <laughs> yeah. We really wanted the Soviets to lose because they were cheating. Because at that time in the Olympics, uh, you could only have amateurs playing. And on paper, in the Soviet Union, all of the sportsmen were amateurs. There were no professional sportsmen in the Soviet Union. So it was technically cheating. So when the Americans won... 
uh, one like nothing in the news. Everyone's like quiet, but everyone around on the street is like, yes, yeah, yeah. And and you've we mentioned didn't, we didn't we didn't identify with the Soviet Union here at all. So yeah, that's that's interesting, and I I think it's important for for Americans to kind of get that that. When you look at something like the Soviet Union or you look at some of the more authoritarian uh, parts of the world today, that Americans are often bombarded with propaganda about you know whatever, whatever country our government wants to start a war with next. And in that propaganda, usually either explicitly or implicitly, there is the message that all of the average people who have the unfortunate luck to live in this in this country that we're, you know, calling a, a horrible enemy that we need to bomb or whatever, that like all the regular people that live in this country, in our crosshairs, are on board with their awful regime and support their regime's crazy ideology and whatever, and so therefore it's okay to like carpet bomb their cities or whatever you know you might do, but the reality is that. A lot of the regular people who just happen to live in this place don't believe in their regime, don't believe in its its ideology, don't believe in its propaganda. They're they're just trying to do their best to live a, as decent of a life as they can, given where they are, and to kind of you know take care of their family the best they can. But they don't really drink the Kool Aid of the regime. Oh yeah, I have to agree there. Uh, that's I, I completely agree with you here because that's, that's really important to understand this one. And and you know the, the control can be subtle, really. They might look like they actually kind of you know going just going through the motions here. Right. Again, they can just go through the motions normally. Yeah, yeah. Uh, one country that comes to mind, um, you know, in recent times on this is Iran, which there's I've heard from multiple people, including some who used to live in Iran that a lot of just average Iranian people actually like America, like American movies and pop culture, and um, don't really like their their oppressive fundamentalist government that they live under, and do their best they can whenever they get a chance to illegally watch American movies and, you know, get American music and all this stuff. And, and so, yeah, it was it was it was the same here. I mean, do you know do, do you know the lengths which we went through to get American music in the Soviet era? Yeah, yeah. This is really this is really amazing. Have you listened to the surprise episode, which which Lesser Bonaparte did for me? Uh, no, that one I haven't listened to. Okay, uh, they they speak about this there, but I'll just put it in short. We had uh, this these illegal books like Sam is that abbreviation of uh, self publishing. Like I have held in my hands Gulag Archipelag. Uh, in a tiny, tiny, tiny A A seven format with bleached pages because you had to wash off the fingerprints. And then there was also some magnetophone, basically uh, those called the uh, magnetophone land mag- magnetophone kind of things, uh, cassettes which you which, which you kind of pirated. But then there was the coolest thing ever. It was called Röntgen is that, which is uh, people went. Dumpster diving in hospitals to get used Rengen images just thrown out, and then they would imprint vinyl record- records on them, so that they could actually kind of roll them up to, and they would be portable, and they would be kind of sneaky. And they imprinted jazz music on them. They imprinted whatever they get could their could get their hands on from the West, and they were called bones because they had images of of Rengen skulls and rib cages on them. Yeah, yeah, actually. Maybe I have listened to that episode, or maybe you mentioned it in another episode that I have listened to, because, yeah, I remember you talking about that. I, I love that stuff. I love that, 
you know, people in a very, in a very clever and subversive sort of a way, just figuring out how to get around all these restrictions and how to get some access to, to good information and to, um, you know, good, good creative expression and music and, and books and movies and all this stuff. I just love it. To me, it's, it's almost like a, a nonviolent form of guerrilla warfare. It's like fighting back against the regime. Yeah, and that is, and that is why the, and that is why totalitarian countries can never succeed in the long run. As long as they don't succeed all over the world at once, as long as there is a place which is not totalitarian, the people will just find a way how to grab something and how to get a bit of their, a bit of their freedom. Food. You've mentioned this oh, wow. a little bit in our conversation today, and you've mentioned it in a bunch of spots, a bunch of episodes of your podcast in different ways. But I, I think it needs to be stressed how much, number one, control of food was important to the regime, and number two, how much um, of of an average citizen's life was consumed with simply trying to get the best food that they could and, and all that stuff. So. Could you kind of tell us more about that? Mm, like a, a woman, a woman just talks to her husband about her neighbor who's repatriating to Israel. <clears throat> just think about it. She's going so far away when you know already fifty kilometers from Moscow. There's nothing to eat. Yeah. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna paint you a picture here. Theater of the mind thing. When when vodka is your currency, basically, and uh, there were people people. Uh, People were skipping work just to stand in lines because they heard that there might be sausages in the store. Okay, uh, at one point before Khrushchev, it, it was it was kind of okay, but then it went really really downhill since the stagnation started, since everything started going to ha- going to, going to hell in a handbasket. No coffee in the stores, no sausages in the stores, no cheese, rarely. Uh, you could four ba- bananas only on Christmas, very rare special occasions. My grandfather, uh, he was a bigwig, uh, sort of the one who fought for the Nazis in the World War II. By the way, uh, he didn't. He was in the Latvian Legion, but he was a civil engineer there. Didn't shoot anyone. He was just building bridges, building roads, because he was born in 1920, I think. So he was building bridges. Then the Soviet power came, and he was continuing to build bridges because all he did was build bridges, essentially. But he actually managed to go to Japan uh, during that era in the form of Soviet delegation, and he brought back a, to- a tiny can of uh, Coke. They split it with his work colleagues in shot glasses, and then he kept the empty Coke can on his shelf as as a sign of like amazingness. <laughs> wow. it, it, it's funny, but it's really not. I mean, the thing about it is, imagine going into the store and seeing that I don't know uh, there are rice there, pasta, kefir. And nothing else. Maybe some fish, canned fish. That's it. Oil, salt, maybe. Yeah, and people... Every day. And, and it was the tradition. If you go outside of, the, of your house, going to work, whatever, and you see there's a queue formed, you just stand in that queue. Because they're giving something. <laughs> people were eating orange. People were waiting in obscene lines to just get anything. Because everything went to the army and to the special stores. It was produced. Soviet Union was so large, it actually produced its own bananas and oranges and everything, but it wasn't available at all. So everything was a deficit product. Yeah, you and, could and get it, anything. In the, in the United States, P- 
people who are considered the poor usually, compared to that, eat reasonably well. I mean, they generally have, at least available to them, they might not choose to buy it, but they usually have some fresh fruit available somewhere, and, you know, it's not too, too expensive and whatever. And it just kind of shows you how, you know, you had all this all this communist propaganda about how in the West, the, you know, the, the poor masses are just horribly oppressed by their capitalist overlords. And the reality was, by comparison, most of yeah, the was, poor in America were eating pretty well. Yeah, basically, there was also this, this, this another political joke. <clears throat> what's uh, like <clears throat> a riddle? What, what's this? A lot of heads... A long, long tail. Eyes are just gleaming. Eggs are tiny, tiny. Uh, eggs are very tiny, and, and the it's a, it's a rude joke. Whatever. Egg, eggs slash balls. Same word in Russian. Uh, tiny and dirty. That's a cue to get to grab eggs for ninety kopecks a piece. <laughs> yeah, it's it's kind of like that. And also another one. Uh, it's a wordplay, but 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 uh, it's like. Uh, Vovoch- like another one, Vovochka is uh, Vovochka is, is studying for his classes and reading uh, reading a textbook. Somewhere, somehow, God gave a crow a piece of cheese. It's apart from a famous Russian th- famous Russian book. And then then he turns to dad and says, "Hey, dad, but but is it does this God actually exist?" And the dad just responds to him, "Stupid kid, does cheese exist? It's a fairy tale." <laughs> And also another one. We don't. It's a wordplay, but it kind of kind of works like this. Uh, we don't have meat. We don't have sausage. We don't have milk. Hey, look around. What just don't we have? It's kind of interesting. And another one was like, you go to your uh, a woman goes to a butcher's shop and states, well, you know, um, um, could you could you just please package me um, two kilos of meat? And the the serving lady just just opens up a, a piece of paper because everything was signed up in paper and just says, "Well, give me your meat." Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, people would take a train ride all day long if they heard a rumor that there might be some decent cheese somewhere. Yep, that's true. They actually the government had to put a limit on this too, so they made these so-called buyers' cars, buyers' cards. Which uh, were given to if you lived in a certain city, you were given the buyer's card, which allowed you to purchase stuff in that city. If you didn't have a buyer's card, you could only buy so much in that city, which is interesting. They even limited that one. It was like this because uh, people didn't own cars at all, and you had this this hitchhiker card, and it was really fun because it's actually a good idea, and I think other countries should do that too. That's one of the good things of the communist era because it's a fun idea. Uh, you have this hitchhiker's card, and you hitchhike by showing the card. And then, you, then when you get into the car, the get, then when the car stops and you can get in, then you kind of note down the number sign of the car and how many kilometers this, the, this guy kind of uh, drove you. And then you kind of give him a sort of check of these data written in. And those checks had numbers, and those, no, and those numbers participated in the lottery, and you could win stuff with them if you had them signed in. And they were and they were kind of checked because everyone had to give in these cards, uh, everyone had to give in these these drivers collectible things, and then if you won, it was checked with the appropriate book because on the check it was written like the book's number. Then you kind of checked if it was correct so you wouldn't cheat, and then you could win something. It's actually it's actually a good system, I think, because you know 
it would kind of promote maybe hitchhiking because I don't hitchhiking would be considered extremely dangerous, but I have hitchhiked a lot in my life as well because I don't have a car. I don't even know how to drive one. I'm 26, by the way. I've never needed a car in my life. But I think it's a good idea because another good thing that was in the Soviet Union was that everyone was equally oppressed, okay? So the only actual crimes happening were the organized crime, essentially, and some psychopaths. But, you know, you don't have that many psychopaths around in any given society. And, but, but, but otherwise, all sorts of kind of – there were no guns around available. There was no gun culture and people were a lot friendlier. You could just hitchhike without worrying that you'll get murdered because everyone knew that, you know, what will you get? I mean there were no murders for property issues whatsoever. Yeah, you kill someone and then you get his stuff and then the next day KGB comes to you and asks you, hey, dude, how did you get that stuff? <laughs> you don't earn that much. There was no point. I mean, what's the point of robbing from someone if you know that that guy has as much stuff as you do, which is not much? Interesting. I, I never thought about it that way. I guess, I guess it's sort of the same way um, on a on a plantation in America two hundred years ago. It was not very common for a slave to to rob or kill another slave. <laughs> yeah, it's the same thing. Because Soviet Union made slaves of its people, and it, just like in a plantation, you could get in there at any moment. Tourists were welcomed, but the border guards existed to not let people out. Border guards had their own artillery battalions. Mm. Border guards had their own air force. KGB had their own air force and artillery battalions and tank battalions and tank army. It was all just to keep people in control. Uh, the Soviet Union was one huge gigantic prison. Yeah. They they kind of just didn't let people out. Yeah, it it always shows that your system is really great when you have to you you've got to threaten people with annihilation if they want to leave. Yeah, that that's how it works. Also, real I want I want to talk about the impact of creativity really cuz uh there was no incentive to create something new. Because all economy is planned. And for example, I'm I'm a huge Warhammer fan, but Warhammer as such, or Dungeons and Dragons and all the, all the geek stuff that I like would have never been invented in the Soviet Union. Why? Because that's not written in the plan. And if you invent, invent something, you don't get anything out of it. You, oh, you get to your author's reward, which is like 50 rubles, one-time payment. Then the state owns it. Yeah, yeah. Isn't that what happened with the video game Tetris, which is the only successful video game to come out of the Soviet Union, I think? Yeah, and it happened very late. The author got his 50 rubles. Nice. It's one of the most popular video uh, games pair, in the a world. Pair, a pair of jeans on the black market at the time cost 200 rubles. He couldn't even buy a pair of jeans for that. Nice. So if he invented three more really good video games, he could have got a pair of, of jeans that yep. that an American could, could get for $15. Yep. Yeah. About the same here. And it was like with everything. Uh, the good st- There was some good stuff there because the Soviet Union was trying to push, up, push this image that everything is great. But... It was kind of interesting because those good good things cost a lot of money. For example, your average engineer earned 120 rubles a month. Now, in comparison, Rubik's Cube, you know, the, the toy, the Rubik's Cube. Right, right. It cost 10 rubles. Wow. So so 10% of the monthly monthly pay for an engineer. bit less. Yeah, a bit less than 10%. Yeah. But yeah, it's a sizable sum for a Rubik's Cube. Yeah. 10 rubles to 120 rubles. Jeans cost... When, uh, jeans on the black market, they weren't available anywhere, cost 200 rubles. A motorcycle cost 839 rubles, and I'm talking 70s here because that's the default. That's the 
That's the Brezhnev Zera, which is the default Cold War Soviet Union. That cost 839 rubles, a motorcycle. Salary is 120 rubles. The same amount was for the uh, color TV and the phone. A car cost from 5,000 rubles upwards. And you had to wait in line for years to get a phone or a car. Your salary is 120 rubles. The average salary, by the way, was higher. It was 200 rubles a month. But that was only because the army was so huge that the artificially inflated uh, officer, officer salaries kind of, kind of resulted in this average number being higher. Interesting. I remember hearing somewhere... And I don't, re- I don't remember like what time period this happened, but at some point in the Soviet Union, they were showing the American movie The Grapes of Wrath, which is a is is based on a book about this impoverished family during the Great Depression, uh, going from the Dust Bowl of Oklahoma, I think, out to California or something like that. It's been years since I've read it, but they were they were going to show this movie The Grapes of Wrath in the Soviet Union under the auspices of, look, this shows how oppressed the, the uh, lower classes in America are. And they ended up having to stop showing it very quickly because when people went to the theaters and saw this movie, the only thing they focused on was, oh my gosh, these, these poor working class people in America own a car. <laughs> like, yeah, that was exactly. all they saw was, oh my gosh, the poor in America own a car. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly true. Yeah, they, there's not much to add. It's just the, what? Wait a minute, they're poor and they own a car. Yeah. 100 and, 120 rubles salary for an engineer with a higher education. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 5,000s upwards from a car. And the poor in America can actually drive a... Look, cars are really expensive. I can't even afford a car, okay? <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, but... I'm, Please donate to Patreon to me as well. <laughs> I'm kidding. No, no, so I'm, actually I'm not because... Uh, it's kind of tough here. We, we, our economy is struggling because of our government over here in Latvia right now is trying to be a welfare state like in Sweden, but they're trying to do these all the hard, hardcore capitalist things like in Germany and it's not working out. Uh, the economical situation isn't that great, but cars are still really, really expensive. And a car, I mean, you could afford a car if you, you took a loan or something, but not everyone owns a car. And when I, for example, speak, spoke to my listener who's 17 and I'm 26, I have a master's degree, I'm doing a PhD, okay? And I can't afford a car even though I'm also – I also used to be a journalist and I still do freelance writing. And I just hear how that 17-year-old from America right now is complaining about how shitty his car is. <laughs> it's a 2008 Jeep. Wow. And I'm like, dude, really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's, uh, that's first world problems right there. And we just joined the OEDC. Hey, we're, we're one of the so-called rich countries. And I'm like, what? We have extremely, extremely great internet connection. But yeah, I don't know. Maybe for some people it's better here. But I'm, I'm nowhere near rich for Latvian standards at all. Do you know how much my university professors make here in Latvia? How much? Uh, about $650 a month. Wow. Yeah, you, you couldn't live on that in the United States. And I'm really happy for this opportunity that podcasting gives me because I don't, unlike, unlike you guys in America, I can manage to just pull this off if, I don't know, if all of my, if all of my supporters would just give me $1 a month, I'd be all, all set and I would just make podcasts all the time. 
was I want to I want to do this academically because this is so new in Latvia that I'm like uh, the go-to guy. I, uh, I work in the media here, and I'm I'm the guy who popularizes podcasts out there. So I'm gonna inf- I'm gonna put this on my PhD as well. But I think that what I want to do in with my life here in Latvia, which is realistic, is that I want to do my PhD, and then I just want to do podcasts because I want to tell the story of my people. Because we're a small country, we've been oppressed for a long time, but you know we exist, and I, I think that. It might be interesting for people to, to understand how we struggled with, with, with the Soviet things and, and what's going on, like the different perspective. Yeah, well, you can have the market all to yourself. That's, that's what's cool. You can be the only fish in the pond. Yeah, but, you know, no one Latvia listens to me because they know all this stuff. And then again, there is one other Cold War podcast out there. It's called Cam and Ray's. They do American perspective from this Cam and Ray's Cold War stuff. But, you know, they, they've contacted me. They're actually really nice guys. <laughs> they, they, they're they going to have me on, on their show as well. And they, they're going to ask me about pronunciation. Besides, I don't do academical stuff. A lot of people say that my show is a bit biased. But you know what? I, what I don't get is that, sure, I'll use a lot of KGB documentation. I tend to not use historic sources written by historians. I use the documents themselves, and I use the stories of the people. I use primary sources, which is my greatest strength, which I would recommend if you want to do a podcast, try to, try to dig to primary sources. So it ends up not being as academic as people might think. But you know what? You can tell me all about how, according to these statistics, everyone was happy, and this happened, and that happened, and those were the trends and tendencies. But when I hear the people saying their own life experiences, and I hear them all over the place, then it's a different perspective at all. I mean, that's how I approach all the situation. Because I know the Soviet Union blatantly lied in their sources, so I can't trust historians who just rely on those sources, can I? Yeah, no, I'm I'm somewhat in a similar boat, obviously, you know, in a different part of the world in a, in a different situation. But in terms of I've been in regular academia, you know, I, I got a, a bachelor's and a master's degree in history, and I've been teaching college history for 10 years now. And I just got – I started my podcast a couple of years ago because I was just kind of tired of academia because academia there, – there's a lot of, of uh, groupthink and a lot of people just sort of conforming to what the other people in the field say. And there's not a lot of, of original thinking or serious questioning of, of what people believe and that sort of thing. And podcasting – it's wide open. You know, you can pretty much say whatever you want to say. And to me, it's just, I, I love the kind of going back to the gross human product idea. I love the, the amount of control and creativity that you have in podcasting, where you can kind of say things and, and cover things in a way that would probably get you blacklisted in <laughs> conventional academia. Twisting this to a more serious topic one, the most important part that the people want to know is that we have this Memorial Day for the people who fought in the Latvian Legion in World War II on the 16th of March. All of Europe, all of Russia are portraying this as glorification of fascism. But think about it. Uh, 1940, Soviet Union invades and actually does exactly the same thing which they did in Crimea in 2014. Fake referendum, army units inside, all of this. Then they basically it was it's estimated that the Soviet Union killed about forty percent of all Latvians. Wow, forty percent. Okay, and then Hitler comes in, and he just says, 
hey guys, you're sort of subhuman, but you're okay. You know, you were under our rule. So Hitler essentially treats us as 50% of humans and, well, deceived us by promising our own independence after the war. He was lying. He didn't want to do that. But at that time, imagine how would you feel? Right. Yeah. Your, your family has been sent out. Your friends have been killed, shot. You've been oppressed. Everything's been terrible. And this Hitler guy comes in and says, hey, you, can get, to, you get to fight those guys who just occupied you. You, you get to kick, them, kick their asses. Yeah, that was that's and they they, they really they really didn't care about the ideology because we had been friendly with the Jews for a long time, and of course there were some brown nosers and fanatics who participated in the genocide. But for the most part, people were trying to save the Jews because Jews are our friends. Because in the R- Imperial Russia, Baltic states were a sort of autonomous region where Jews were oppressed actually way less than the main Russian Empire. This is the friendly spot for Jews. A lot of Jews lived here. We, we kind of grew, grew up together. We knew Jews. Jews were our friends. And we kind of hate the Bolsheviks. But this new regime hates Jews, wants to kill them. Well, okay, we kind of have to kind of figure something out because we don't want to kill our neighbors. So a lot of Latvians actually saved a lot of Jews and sent them away even though while well, they're being Nazi soldiers. And it's, it's very interesting because we celebrate those men who fought against Bolshevism, but not because they were Nazis. We're not celebrating Nazism. We're celebrating those people. Because uh, Kurland Pocket was one of the very, very last, last pieces of the Nazi army that surrendered. And you know why they held out so long? So that as many people as humanly possible could escape from the Soviet regime. So that they could get on boats and go to Sweden, for example, or somewhere away. They were standing there and shooting the Soviets so that people could escape from this country, so that they would have a life. They were giving their best. They didn't care about the Nazism. They just ignored that stuff. Okay, some did. There were, all, there were always fanatics and everything, and not, not saying that everyone was just pure and, and stuff. No, no, it wasn't like that. There were also guys who were doing terrible things in the Soviet Union who were Latvians. But, but that's why we remember those men who fought for the Nazis, for the Latvian SS Legion, because they really just wanted to protect our own country. Because the Soviets really exterminated a lot of us. And after the war, which is telling, is that a lot, uh, units from the Latvian Legion were the guys whom the UN tasked with guarding the Nuremberg tribunals. They weren't the accused guys. They were the guys standing around and guarding the whole thing. And it's another reason why we're kind of angry at Sweden because from all of those people who escaped to Sweden, not other places, Sweden actually sent a lot of people back to the Soviet Union, where they were sent away again. So um, I want to get to this with documents and everything and all how the Eastern Front went, but I think it's pretty important for the listeners to understand that we're, we're not Nazis. We're nowhere near Nazis. It's just that when 40% of your people have been exterminated by the Soviets, and you see this one, okay, it's terribly evil. We're stuck between two monsters, but Hitler treated us better than the Soviets did. It's tragic. It's one of the most tragic tales that I can tell people. But, well, yeah, it's always tragic when the only two options you have are communists or Nazis. <laughs> it's, you know, when, no, you, if, if you had to pick between Stalin and Hitler, you know, yeah, it's kind of a. It's a lose-lose situation, really. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess the best choice, if you can, which obviously vast majority of people didn't have the option, but I guess the best choice, if you can, is to just get the hell out. 
when you when you've got the we uh, really didn't think it would happen like this because we had national resistance movement against the Soviets up until like the death of Stalin up until the fifties. A lot of people really hoped that the, the U.S. would come and do something, and and this whole situation that escaping started that. Our leader at the time, Karl Sulman, is considered one of the. He was an authoritarian, authoritarian leader. Sorry, my English pronunciation is not that great because English is not my native language. Um, so I'm sorry for my accent and everything. But in his most famous speech, he said, "You remain on your place as I remain in mine." When the Soviets invaded, yeah, that that was a word. I don't know. I don't know what he meant with that, but that's a historical fact. It's recorded on radio. But he essentially said to Latvian people, "Don't escape. Don't fight back. Just you know, let's let's endure through this," which led to a to a ton of ton of deaths. Well, I'm sorry for making all of this grim and miserable, but um, that's that's one of the weird things about the Baltics, which I think people should know, because I'm really, really, really tired being called a Nazi every 16th of March when I go and just place flowers on our veterans' memorial for those people who fought against Bolshevism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, people just uh, a lot of people just don't know don't know the history. I guess it just comes down to that. And it's used for Russian propaganda at this point. Oh, I'm sure, yeah. But yeah, but all these unique perspectives is essentially what my show runs on. Yeah. And the most tragical thing I, I have encountered was on the episode 10 of my show, and I really, shameless plug, please, please do actually come and listen to my, my episodes. I On the Chernobyl episode, because that the, the research for that episode really scarred me. It was terrible. Yeah. Because uh, there were people who were there who are just the guys, like, you know, there were just conscripts, and conscripts in the USSR were just sent all over the place, and there were just conscripts sitting in their army base, and in the middle of the night, they get picked up from the barracks, and they're, they're not said where they're going, what's going to happen, not giving any anti-radiation or anything, they're just just stuffed into helicopters and, and just sent over there, and then they have to pick up this, this rubble, all of this stuff, and they're just sent back, and no one cares. They don't know where they're going. They don't know what they have to do. They don't know anything. And at the same time, uh, Gorbachev is just airing Disney cartoons, which was a special occasion all over the TV. He's actually gathering kids for a massive kids party for the 1st of May celebration near the the town of Pripyat. Okay? It's a massive tragedy, and I met those people, and it's crazy. All the, oh, one of them is blind. None of them can have any children anymore. One of them has cancer already. It's and, and 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 I met those guys. They they still hang out here in in, in Latvia. They they, they work. Uh, they live in a very rural rural area near near this place, and and they they're kind of close friends. And none of them have any families. They're basically the only family they have. And I had to buy them a five liter bottle of moonshine to get the stories out. And I understand why, because the the worst part was that no one cared at the time. The same with the war, war in Afghanistan, which is also an episode which I did, which was just terrible because you know, all wars over here are remembered, but those were soldiers who were just from Latvia, which didn't like the Soviet Union, just sent to Afghanistan to do their dirty work. Because that's the really we-don't-give-a-shit attitude uh, about the people. And I got their stories, and um, those were my best episodes, I think, Chernobyl and Afghanistan. And... Uh, yeah, but those were heavy. Those were really hard for me to do because when you're when you're sitting down there with people who are like 
scarred, damaged by the state and who are there and who are with tears in their eyes telling you all of this. And I know that such stories aren't known in the world because they don't speak English. They're not historians. They're just guys. They they work in in a, in a lumber facility somewhere or something, and you hear them, and and it's it's their story, and they're crying because you know I I get to tell their story to the people, and and I think that's that's the beautiful part of of what I do, and and that's the that's the human human thing which I do. I think that's the my, my greatest greatest feeling of 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 achievement isn't isn't about popularity or uniqueness it's about going to these people and just saving up some of their worth some of their stories and just showing them to the rest of the world and how it's really like and uh, for example people on the internet on on some groups who just are like very pro-communistic and who just post yeah soviet union was great let's do communism all those people wow well, I just want to punch them in the face sometimes. Let's be, I'll be honest here. Yeah, I would want to punch them in the face just because I know the history. I can only imagine how much uh, a person, you know, from from a part of the world that suffered under that system would want to punch them in the face. Um yeah, definitely uh, I, I'm going to repeatedly encourage uh my listeners to check out your show because those episodes you mentioned were were heavy and dark but very important. And then you've got some other episodes that are sort of lighter mixed in, so you get, you know, some of the, the more amusing sides of this whole thing. But you definitely can't ignore just the the darkness um, of that whole, that whole history of, of that system. Um, how much dehumanization went on? I mean, the war in Afghanistan, the United States had its war in Vietnam where, again, the soldiers were many of them unwilling conscripts who were just sent over there who didn't want to be there and didn't even know what what was going on. But I think it just happened on a larger scale and a more regular basis in the Soviet era of just kind of feeding people into the machine. You know, Stalin did it with his five-year plans and all that, right? Where it's basically, we're going to industrialize the Soviet Union and to hell with how many bodies we have to walk over on that on the road. I can tell you how many bodies, uh, because have you heard about the term Holodomor? Um, I don't know. I don't think so. Holodomor, or extermination by hunger, was what Stalin did and what he sacrificed to industrialize the Soviet Union. He killed an estimated about 7.5 million Ukrainians. Ukraine was the most... Uh, was the most fertile place in the whole Soviet Union. It was the place where all the grain, a lot of grain was, was raised. In Ukraine, the situation like this, when the spring comes, they have this term, Raspustitsa. The, the ground is so thick and so fertile that it basically becomes such deep mud that nothing can go through it. It's extremely fertile ground. And once the Tsarist gold ran out, he just took all the grain from all Ukrainians and starved them just to sell it to the United States and Canada so that he would get the money for which to industrialize the whole country in a few years. People were driven to cannibalism. It's a massive catastrophe. And it all happened just because of imperialistic ambitions. It was, it was really, really a terrible, terrible thing. Because Stalin, Stalin was... See, I, I don't know. I kind of 
See, Hitler was a madman. He was insane. It's obvious. He was a crazy person. Stalin, in my eyes, is a bit more worse than Hitler, a bit more evil than Hitler, because Stalin had a plan for it. Stalin calculatedly killed those people. He wasn't crazy. A lot of people have liked to depict Stalin as paranoid, crazy, something. No, that makes him worse. He was a cold, calculating person. And honestly speaking, I don't know how he was so crazy that I don't know how he got the power, especially since Lenin specifically stated that whomever gets the power in the Soviet Union, just don't allow Stalin to get the power. Really, anyone but Stalin. Seriously, I don't care. Just not Stalin. And then Stalin just did his thing. That was, that was it. That was crazy. But the, the, the strange part is that really... He's glorified now and then because of the industrialization. And I mean, glorified in, in, in Russia today, I mean, in some parts in Georgia where he was from. Because I don't, I don't even know. That was, a, that was a terrible genocide which happened and uh, so many people just, just died and, and because, because of this. And it's kind of, kind of crazy because people still glorify Stalin. Some, there are people out there who think that, oh, yeah, he was a great leader. He beat Hitler. Well, yeah, he beat Hitler because, I don't know. And one of the most interesting facts about the fact is that people often forget that Stalin and Hitler used to be allies and that they conquered Poland together, which I don't get it as, you know, the World War II started because of the invasion of Poland, right? Yeah, you know. But Stalin also invaded Poland together with Hitler. Yeah, yeah, it's it's funny that you should bring that up because... In my history classes, when I cover the beginning of World War II in Europe, I, I fixate on that exact same point that, okay, Germany invaded Western, Western Poland, and then Britain and France declared war on Germany when that happened. But when Stalin invaded Eastern Poland and also brutally conquered it and occupied it and carried out mass murders, the British and French and everybody else didn't really say anything. And they had a common victory parade. It's documented. Yeah, there are pictures yeah. from it. Yeah, and Stalin carried out massacres uh, of the Polish people that were every bit as horrible as the massacres the Nazis did in Poland. And you know, and Brit- actually, 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 I think that uh, I'm one of those people who think that Stalin would have attacked Hitler, even if Hitler wouldn't attack Stalin. Because you know, it was just two monsters looking in a way how to backstab each other. That's how I. That's how I look at this. Hitler did it first, but. Stalin just as well might have just invaded him as well. Yeah, yeah. There have been a couple of good books that have come out in recent years with a lot of uh, good, you know, new solid research about about that whole idea that Stalin would have would have eventually attacked Hitler. It was just Hitler was uh, was a lot earlier with it. But it's you know, I kind of see the role of history and and everything. As a way of, like you said in your last show, which I listened to carefully because I support the idea of a gross human product. The fact, and what you mentioned in your show is that you have to learn the history to somehow cope with the present and to deal with the future. This this feeling of understanding of, of history and the events that are going on, it's like amazing. Because my teacher in the university used to say that history is just applied philosophy. And it's... Not a derogatory term, actually, because they're very closely related, I think. Yeah, yeah. There was a saying from uh, a famous 
American. It might have been one of our our so-called founding fathers. I can't I can't remember who. And the saying is, I think it was from a famous American. Maybe it was from some uh, Enlightenment British thinker. I forget. But anyway, the saying is that history is philosophy teaching by example. Yeah, I have to agree to that one. That's why, like in our country. in the Latin university, the biggest university there is, the faculty of history and philosophy is separated from the humanities faculty. Because it's kind of different that way. But, you know, I, I really, what I, what I like about your show is, <laughs> yeah, uh, to listeners who don't know, we are both on Dark Myths, darkmyths.org, sh- another shameless plug. But uh, other show, we're not in the group of history podcasts, which is interesting because I'm, I'm st- I am um, I'm stating about my Eastern Bloc and everything, and Dangerous History is hell called Dangerous History. We're on that group, and I'm opening the page now so that I can quote precisely. We are on the culture and politics part. We're the only podcasts, only two podcasts there on the culture and politics section of Dark Myths. So, uh, yeah, I guess, I guess we're the only shows who take the history in this, this light. I don't know. But you're my comrade in culture and politics and dark myths. I, I guess so. I guess it's because we don't shrink from making explicit connections between how we see history and how we see current events and kind of recent things. Yeah, because it influences, it influences these things, I think. Uh, because, I don't know, a lot, a lot of podcasters really shy away from making any political comments. Well, I don't. I received death threats already. Yeah. So if someone hates me for my political views, yeah, you can sign on that nice list over there with the, with the rest of the threats I'm receiving. Yeah, I so have whatever. to say, I've, I've never gotten a death threat, so I, I guess I'm not being controversial enough. I don't know. I've, I've had people accuse me of, of various uh, points of view and things that I don't hold. Um, everything. We are beating you in the death threat gap. Oh, Aha. yeah, yeah, yeah. You're you're definitely winning on that front. I guess I'm not doing my job well enough. But a lot of history podcasts, and I'm not gonna I'm not gonna name names because I'm not looking to start some sort of podcast war. Uh, but a lot of the history podcasts that are out there, and there's a lot of history podcasts out there, as you know, and we love all of them, by the way. Yeah, we love right. Especially <laughs> their colleagues. I mean, I'm on another history podcast as well. I'm on Lesser Bonaparte still because I got invited there. Uh, yeah. This is a legal disclaimer, so that people wouldn't hate us and wouldn't think that we're like these elitists. That that's right. Yeah, I'm, I'm not. I'm not speaking of of the other shows on dark myths. Um, speaking of the history podcasts that are just out there on the ether, and I'm not speaking about all of them either. There are plenty of good history podcasts that I enjoy, but a lot of the ones that I don't enjoy are ones that are just too dry. They have kind of no particular point to what they're saying. They might as well just be reading headings off of a timeline or just reading the cliff notes of a Wikipedia page on something. They kind of have nothing beyond, isn't this kind of some interesting random information and trivia? And to me, if that's all that history is, are little bits of amusing trivia. And don't get me wrong, little bits of amusing trivia I appreciate in history. Yeah, obviously. But, but if that's all that you've got is just here's some, some dry facts and some occasional interesting bits of trivia, the, to me, then history doesn't really matter very much. You know, there's got to be something more to it besides just, just that stuff. Yeah, you're right on spot here in Darkmouth here. The, I think is, I, I don't know, people are really passionate about subjects here, but 
You're right. Because for me, because uh, uh, my, my normal job, which I used to work, I'm still a freelance journalist doing some heavy research. I think that history shows a perspective. It just puts things in context. It gives you a huge amount of information to work with. And the more you learn about history, the more you understand that, you know, it's, it's always been terrible. Yeah. There have always been troubles, but people have dealt with them. Yeah. There's yeah. The there's, side. there's, there's never really been a golden age ever anywhere. And one of the things that drives me nuts about the way a lot of Americans see history is a lot of Americans think that there was some golden age in American history where like everything was great. And some people would look back maybe to the 1950s. Some people might look back further than that. Some people might look all the way back to the American revolution and, and kind of the early founding of the United States as a separate country. And they have these mythical golden ages of, you know, oh, if we could just get back to fill in the blank with whatever year they like, you know, if we could just get back to the way things were then. And the reality is, if you actually study the facts of any of these supposed golden ages, you can find a hell of a lot of bad stuff going on, you know. You can find, I mean, oh, if we could just get back to the days of the founding fathers, right, you mean back when... Um, when when there were a few million slaves owned in the United States, and when like all sorts of categories of people had no rights, and where you could just sort of wipe out entire populations of Native Americans without even worrying about it, and uh, when people would routinely die of strep throat at age ten, you know, um, there's there's no good old days. Well, yeah, of course, and one of the most interesting things that you want to tell, talk talk with the Americans is that. Uh, when did the Civil War exact in 1865, I think, right? That's when it ended. Yeah, right. Uh, do you know when serfdom was abolished in the Russian Empire? It was right around the same time, wasn't it? A bit later. Oh, okay. Or over here it was 1878. Okay. Uh, and in different parts of it, because um, it's kind of strange, because our sir, we we got we got we were essentially serfs, which was essentially slavery. The same thing, you could be sold as property, beaten, everything, just called differently, with a bit more laws. A rape wasn't allowed, for one. Uh, but still, we were property and we were slaves here for the foreign powers for longer and for the way more extended periods of time for like uh, than the American slaves were. So uh, when, when, when returning to the previous point, when people talk about white privilege, I sometimes remind them that you know what, my people got some liberties after the American slaves got their freedom. Yeah, sure. Even later. And that's, that's an important point here to make because man's desire to oppress another man isn't going away. And it's been here with us forever in different cultures and different forms. But it's always there. And we as intelligent thinking people have to kind of fight back. We kind of have to figure out ways how to not be oppressed. Yeah, no, I would agree with that. Uh, by the way, just just for you and for any listeners uh, who might be interested, there is a a pretty recent book that I have not read yet, but it's on my list. It's a book by an American historian named Peter Kolchin, which to me sounds like a like a Russian last name, maybe. And Peter Kolchin is a top American historian of American slavery. I have read several books by him about American slavery. And his his most recent book is about 
comparing American slavery with serfdom in Russia. Wow, I I really must read that book. Yeah, yeah. I'll go ahead and I'll put it in the – I'll put a link to it on Amazon in the show notes. But – I forget what the what the name of the book is offhand. I'll look it up later and throw it in the yeah, show notes. Yeah, please, please do. I'm really interested because I'm always I've always wanted to have a deeper look at this comparison because the situations are in fact quite similar. Yeah, yeah. And this historian Peter Kolchin, he's he's a very good historian, and he's he's one of those historians that actually writes very well. He's not dry to read usually, and as far as I know, he is an expert on on both American slavery and on uh, Russian serfdom. So. Should be a very interesting book. I've got it on my wish list now. It's just my wish list of of books is you know endless, right? I'm sure, I'm sure you have the same situation where just endlessly finding new books to uh, to read to maybe help you with your show and all. That. Yeah, yeah, a lot of them. And uh, you know, uh, Daryl Cooper from Martyrmate Podcast. You know that guy. I, I presume you know that person. Um, yeah, I've listened to his show. I don't, yeah, great. I don't know him. But, yeah. uh, he, he sent me a book uh, for Christmas, which arrived five months later, like in May. But uh, he actually sent me Oswald Spengler's Decline of the West. Oh, okay. Which is a very controversial book. But yeah. it's, it, it was on my list because even though it's a controversial book, it's extremely controversial. I want to read it, which is a thing that I think that most people kind of in these days, as far as I know – Try to avoid stuff that they might not like. And there was a huge furor, furor anger around the fact that there was a reprint of uh, Hitler's Mein Kampf in Germany with comments from the historians in the book. And people were raging about this. But I don't see the reason why. I think that you should read information that you don't agree with, that you find hateful, that you find controversial. Yeah. I think that you should expose yourself to these ideologies as well. Because information itself can't hurt you. You just understand it better. You you know why it's bad then. And just because people – I find it extremely dangerous when people are raging about a reprint of Mein Kampf in these days because that's a book that should be read and studied, understood so that it would never repeat, so that we wouldn't have another Hitler. Yeah, yeah. I remember hearing some time back, and I don't know if this is still the case, that in addition to the United States, one of the very few countries in the world – where uh, Mein Kampf is regularly reprinted is actually in Israel because they don't want anyone to forget. Yeah, exactly. And that's, that's the right attitude. This is why I really don't understand the people who want to safeguard themselves from information. Yeah. yeah no. no. Infor- I'm, I'm hateful views are com- – hateful expression hate, – hate speech is combated with more speech, not with, right. not with less speech. Uh, hate speech – you should be able to combat hate speech – with arguments, with facts, with your own speech. You should be able to show why the hate speech is wrong, why the hate speech is terrible, not prohibit hate speech at all. Because yeah. once you start prohibiting some forms of speech, it goes downhill from there. Yeah. I'm against safe spaces for that matter. Uh, you know you're right. You defend, you defend it. You fight for it. That's what we did in the Soviet Union, you know. Uh, we kind of – even though in this whole sphere of information – this political field, we were always propagandized and propaganda was, was thrown at us. But in our families, we always taught the kids how it was like before and what the Soviet Union is doing and all of that stuff. So it works. And just because you see some piece of information which makes you feel uncomfortable and bad, it doesn't mean you shouldn't read it. 
It means you should study it. You should think about it in a philosophical way by by reading it and just thinking in your head the arguments of this. Okay, Hitler says this. Why does he say that? What are the arguments for this? What are the arguments against this? I don't think like that. It's obviously evil. So how would I counter that in the discussion, for example? You need to you, you need to know these things. You need to know these things so that you would so that these those things wouldn't repeat. It's just that simple. I, I think at least. I might be wrong here. I'm I'm a crazy Latvian with a sharpened shovel, okay? So <laughs> don't get mad. Well well if you're wrong then I'm wrong too, because I agree with you one hundred percent on on freedom of speech and on encouraging people to to read uh or if it's a movie, watch it, or if it's something audio listen. You know, go consume stuff that's controversial and go consume stuff periodically, make an effort, because most people, myself included, most people in general, um, have an automatic tendency to only consume things that they already agree with, right? It's, it's and, and Google has made it easier. Google yeah. has made it easier. Yeah. Uh, my master's thesis, by the way, was about uh, – <clears throat> okay, the, the technical thesis was <clears> – <throat> Uh, the analysis of video games as a phenomenolog- phenomenological artifact in comparison with Heidegger and Husserl's theories. Huh. What it really ended up with was how I looked how the, the latest generation thinks. And one of my conclusions was that, you know why people get offended on the internet so much? Because for them, at least in this, this very strictly narrow philosophical aspect and this uh, this way of thinking – because obviously uh, be- be- people who don't have uh, scientific degrees, uh, when, when we say about theories and it sounds controversial, media has blown it up. Actually, all, all of the scientific theses are very narrow and specific. Uh, it was all about the fact how how for, for these people, at least from this specific standpoint, but okay, fine, I won't repeat it again. Uh, from this standpoint, computers and their Facebook profiles are a continuation of their own personas. Uh, they are as natural to them as trees or natural objects for us. So they actually view the hateful comment on your Facebook page as an, as a, as how we would view as direct assault. But what I was what I was looking one of the aspects there was how it actually changes the thinking patterns. And what I find out is that you know Facebook filters out uh, what you see on your feed on your wall uh, by what you like, what you agree to. They they show you ads the same way. So you always see the stuff that you can agree with. And the Googling and the internet only encourages that. So that's what I'm, that's what I'm trying to kind of break through. And that's, that's why you should read real books and actually go to your library now and then. Yeah, and, and the internet can be great if, if you make the conscious effort to yeah, deliberately seek out alternative points of view and whatever. Because I got to say – most of the things I believe in, in terms of my own ideology, and I think everybody – I I don't think there is such a thing as being an ideology-free human being. I think every human being has an ideology. But um, the things I believe today are very different in most instances from the things I believed when I was you know 20 years old or when I was even 25 years old. Well, I'm 26 right now, and I believe that my views will change in the future as well. So yeah, yeah. I, <laughs> how, old, how old are you, by the way? I am in a few months. I'll be 35. Oh well, you're younger than Glenn from Lesser Bonapartes. But yeah, I can. If I would be 18, I would say it makes no. It doesn't matter. But I'm 26 at this moment, and I have learned that you know what? Actually, it does because. Um, 
to the young people who are listening to this, when someone older tells you that you'll, you'll get it in time, yeah, they're not lying. <laughs> yeah. they're, they're really not lying. They're, they, they maybe are just lacking the words to express their lived experiences properly. But there are things you get when you get older, and I'm sure that Prof. Prof. C.J. here has experienced way more than I have, and that when I'll be his age, which is nine years, then uh, I'll also be a lot more wiser than I'm right now. Yeah, but it but the the gaining of of wisdom though, it also is not just a function of time. It depends on how how you are as an individual. Like, are you an individual who is curious? Are you an individual who does uh, deliberately seek different different points of view and different perspectives on things, or are you someone who just completely stays within your confirmation bias little little echo chamber and there are plenty of people out there, and this is i'm sure the case in Latvia or anywhere else in the world as much as it is in the United States. There are plenty of people who, when they're at age fifty believe the exact same stuff on important issues that they believed when they were 18. And uh, yeah, because, because uh, using my philosophical degree here, uh, I'm sorry. Do it. Uh, but it, it's, a, it's like Immanuel Kant said, and, and I'm going all the way back to Immanuel Kant. Don't, don't, don't say bad things about the guy. But he, in one of his essays, uh, basically in the essay, uh, What is Enlightenment?, answer to the question, what is enlightenment, uh, said that the hardest thing for people to do is start thinking for themselves. It's a very hard process. It involves a lot of errors. It's a really hard thing to do. A lot of people just don't do that because it's, it's actually hard to form your own opinions. It's hard to critically evaluate things. It's hard not to you know, buy things which media tells you as a given. You know, People tell you how to live. But Kant said the famous sentence, sapere aud, dare to think. Um, and that means you should always evaluate everything with your own head. You, you hear a fact, you hear an argument, you have to think about it. Does, does this apply in this case? How does it work? You have to think for yourself. And if you start doing that, and it's a really, really extremely hard process, yeah. then you can just, just do this. It's easier, it's easier not to think. You don't need to think to live in this modern society. I'm sorry, but you kind of you, you can you can just not do that, yeah, and lead a happy, healthy life. I, I suppose I don't know I don't know how that feels, but uh, it's pretty serious. Yeah, pretty serious. Our, our biggest problem is that not enough people think, and then this is actually what we're what we're trying to do here. I suppose this is what podcasting is all about because we're I, I doubt that people who don't think listen to our shows. They're they're not that interested in them, but. No. We're just we're just provoking thoughts. To be honest, we're just provoking thoughts. We're like crazy guys who like to talk on on their silly microphones about nonsense. Well, one of the things that I I've taken away from listening to your podcast that kind of connects to this is the way that people did resist. I mean, the natural default human setting. I agree with you. The natural default human tendency is to simply obey and conform to authority and to what is kind of going on around you and societal norms and whatever. And what, what the kind of hopeful part of your podcast, because, you know, there's all this, this history, which is kind of sad of, of all these horrible tragedies and, and atrocities, but the kind of upside of it is how much people did in their own 
little ways not conform, how much regular people did resist and did rebel and did all these things like what you were talking about before, figuring out ways to to make pirated books and movies and records. And, um, you know, there's a lot of that, that positive aspect of it, which really came out in your recent episode about childhood, where one of one of the nice things about childhood in that system was there was this great do-it-yourself spirit. And there was, you know, you mentioned MacGyver before. Um, I've known several people here in the States who were born and raised under communism and then who later emigrated to the United States. I've, I've known um, at least a couple that I can think of. One one guy from who, who grew up in Czechoslovakia when that was communist and another guy who grew up in Cuba and then, you know, eventually made it to Florida. And what I what I see in both of them that is a positive side effect of living under that horrible system is that they're they're both very resourceful. They're they're both of these guys that I've known they could make stuff and fix stuff. Uh just oh, yeah, we we had to learn they that. had to. I can fix stuff too. I mean, it's nothing special over here in these parts. But yeah, it's, it's great you're talking about. I see your point, and then again, on the downside, I'm going to play the devil's advocate here. But on the downside, uh, which ruined a lot of economies, is that what I find great about America is that you guys always value money way more than we do. You know how to operate that one. Your kids at school, as far as I know, are taught how to earn money, how to do business. We didn't have that here. We can, we can, we can manage, but. You know so much more than we do about how to actually how actually business works, how economy works, all these economical things. Well, I think I think that's the great part about America. I have to say something good about your country, don't I? <laughs> yeah. Well, the the entrepreneurial spirit in America is is an interesting thing. Um, it's one of the things that I find the most positive about America. Um, all those stories of people who invented things or started a business and went from racks to riches. And I'm actually going to do a series probably in a, in a few months about some of that history. But on the other hand, at least today, now I think it was different earlier in American history. But in recent times, I think a lot of that entrepreneurial spirit and do-it-yourself attitude, um, starting your own business and all that sort of thing, it's not as widespread amongst the American population as it used to be. There's plenty of people who still are that way, but I think if you went back maybe a, a few generations or more in American history, that attitude and um, you know the, the ability to do something like start a, start a little business or something, it used to be more widespread. It used to be almost a kind of American ideal in a way that it's not with everybody anymore. It's only confined to like some people. So um, if, if, that, if that makes any sense, I, I, I think that, that some of that, that attitude has faded away and actually entrepreneurship, believe it or not, is not taught very much at all in most American schools. And the Americans who are good at entrepreneurship usually had to learn it on their own, had to learn from, from kind of um, a mentor or just learn through trial and error going out into the business world because American schools really don't, don't teach much or encourage much about, about entrepreneurship and those sorts of things, believe it or not. And wow. yeah, yeah, it's, 
it's not as common of a thing. American schools, typically anyway, I'm sure there are exceptions, but in, in general, American schools are just training you to be an employee. They're training you, you know, to, to do what your boss says and to show up on time and to not cause too much trouble. Uh, but there's, in, in most American schools, I think there's not a whole lot about entrepreneurship. And a lot of America's most successful entrepreneurs in recent years have been college dropouts, right? I mean, probably a lot of people know Bill Gates, Steve Jobs, uh, many other examples, people who who flunked out of college or who just dropped out of college um, because they felt like they weren't learning anything useful there. And they went and started their own business in their garage and became billionaires. Well, well I don't know. They're... Another Soviet joke for you, which kind of explains what the Soviets thought about Americans. <clears throat> American and the British, because this this will just show my whole point. American and the British person and the Russian are just bragging about who can force a cat to eat mustard. American just grabs the cat and just stuffs mustard in his throat. That's violence, the Russian is protesting. The Englishman uh, takes the mustard, just puts it between two slices of sausage, and just cat is eating that one. That's cheating, protests Russian. And then the Russian just takes mustard and stuffs it in the cat's butt. And the cat is just panicking and just licks it out. And the Russian says, ah, take notice. With, with, with a freedom, it's, it's like uh, voluntarily and with a song. <laughs> because the cat is meowing. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, <laughs> welcome, welcome to the Russian way. Nice, nice. I don't know. There, there's. It seems to me there's a different entrepreneurship amongst the, uh, the the former communist world, where you all were very ingenious at at black market activity and and theft and you know uh, theft from your from your horrible oppressive uh, state factory or whatever that you had to work in. I don't know. I, I kind of admire th- that. And there have been a lot of people who've come to the United States from either the Soviet Union or from Cuba or some other place where, there, where there's communism or where there used to be communism who have gone on to become very successful in business in America. I can tell you why. You don't cheat. That's a thing uh, which we spoke about with Daniele Bellelli, and uh, he noticed that He's an Italian. He's also a university professor. And in, in over here in, in the post-Soviet countries and in Europe in general, because Italy is also kind of on the cheesy end, over here it's kind of normal. You're doing a test and you know that you've studied and if someone pokes you and says, hey, dude, um, can you just pass me your answers? You pass those answers because you need the answers back at some point. Cheating at school is normal. The teachers punish you for that, but everyone does it. We just help, help each other out. Because helping your pal is is much more important and valuable than doing things right. Like the guy has a hangover, he hasn't studied, you know, you just pass him the paper, he'll pass you the paper someday too. We, instead of being competitive, we helped each other out and because there was no purpose of being competitive while living in the Soviet Union. Or in, I don't know, apparently in Italy as well, as Bolelli told me, because most of Europeans work this way. We're like, hey, help me out. Oh, well, okay. <laughs> kind of collective feeling. And uh, he said that in America, it's completely different that people actually complain among the cheaters, which is strange, because over here, uh, over here, the fact that if you cheat successfully, then it's kind of okay. I mean, if after the test, teacher finds that you have cheated on the test, they won't do anything to you because you didn't do that on the test. They didn't catch you. Great. 
pass the test. It's excellent. And also, if the teacher catches you with a kind of a very elaborately written sneaky paper, we call it speakers here, I don't know how it's in English, uh, uh, with, with a paper written your notes and which you have hidden in some elaborate way, they might actually just give you a free pass and just send you home because you have apparently spent your effort and time actually writing down all the things and hiding them. <laughs> That this is what happens. We're we're helping each other out, and I think this is this is where it comes from. Because, huh. for example, cheating the system because your friends and your honor and your comrades and your pals are much more important than obeying the rules at school. Yeah, that, yeah. That's, well, that's that's the thing here, which is kind of different as far as I have learned. Yeah, yeah. I think too many Americans still still view the system and authority and whatever as somehow being legitimate, uh, which is. Uh, I don't know, to me, is kind of a delusion, but, um, you know, they, they still see some legitimacy and authority, whereas in some of these other parts of the world, people have what I would consider a point of view that's more cynical, but also more realistic in regards to authority. Yeah, but also Americans have a lot of this can-do attitude, a lot of optimism. Europeans are much more cynical, like you said. We're terribly jaded and cynical, and if you want to do something new over here, uh, then... You will hear a thousand reasons from all of your mates around you why you shouldn't do that. Mm. They'll tell you, no, no, it is going to be terrible and stuff. And a lot of people, uh, also kind of Latvians, of, of those who listen to me, I'm not popular in Latvia at all because they know this stuff. Um, uh, they've, they've told me that, you know, why are you doing this? It's not professional enough. You, you, those are your errors. There's a ton of them. All this negative attitude. Americans, as far as I know, are optimists. Sometimes you're dumb optimists when you just yes. ignore the odds completely. But on the other hand, you are the guys who take chances, who do things, who, who are like optimistic. And when someone is doing something, you're like, yeah, you go on, man. It's going to succeed. Yeah, America. Uh, and yeah. it's great. And it's great because over here we're so negativistic and no one's doing – there's much less innovation because we're cynical and cheaty and we can manage individually. But as a culture, I think it's kind of bad because people are looking down on my, my own podcast and saying, oh, why are you doing this? You're, you're shaming all of Latvia. You're nowhere near professional <laughs> as you should be. Um, that's, that's normal. That's normal. Um, it's also uh, – it's, it's kind of a drawback. I don't think there is a better culture for one. There, there is no better culture. There yeah. are just differences here. Yeah. And um, that's why I kind of like Americans because I have actually learned that I was really worried and people are complaining that I apologize too much on my show. But that's my cultural negativity thing. But I really appreciate the can-do attitude and the belief that, oh, my God, that guy did it. I can do that too. That would be it. That guy did it. He must have cheated in some way and he's a terrible evil bastard. <laughs> This is this is this is the interesting thing, really. Yeah, yeah, that is interesting. I never thought of it. I guess I guess the optimism it, it depends on what it's about. You know, if the optimism is, hey, I'm going to invent the iPhone, and then you invent the iPhone, that's great. If your optimism is, hey, we're going to invade Iraq and Afghanistan and turn them into modern, westernized, peaceful democracies in a few months, um, <laughs> then the optimism might actually come back to bite you in the ass. Okay. Uh- which, which reminds me of this optimism. I will now tell a political joke, which you can easily apply to today's presidential election. <clears throat> Making a political statement here, but you'll have to use some wisdom to get this. Anyways, <clears throat> Stalin proved that a single man can rule a huge country. Khrushchev proved that any man can lead a huge country. Yeah. Brezhnev proved that huge countries can just go without leadership. <laughs> Apply that to today's presidential election and think about it for a second. Yeah. Not spoiling anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Um, there were a few more things that I, that I wanted to make sure to ask you about. Blitz questions, blast me with them. I'll, I'll answer this because this has been super fun and I'm really thankful for this conversation. It's been a great, great thing. Yeah, yeah, sure. I think it's going to make for a really cool uh, podcast episode. Um, I wanted to just ask you now, you've covered this in depth in at least one of your episodes that I've listened to, but just to kind of tease my listeners a little bit, tell us a little bit about how the Soviet authorities dealt with questions of like, vice and abnormality and um, sexual relations and all those oh, sorts man. of personal matters. Because that, that's very interesting stuff. Oh, wow. Um, one, they pretended it doesn't exist. Everyone pretended it doesn't exist, but it did, of course. Secondly, if you were found, if you were in the party and you and, and, or you just were in a position of, of some sort of importance, if, you were fi- if they would find that you were cheating on your wife, You'd be publicly shamed. You'd use, you you would lose your job and anything. And some marriages were prearranged too in the higher echelons. So essentially, any abnormality was dealt with. And the in the early in the early years, you know, ice pick bullet, ice pick more efficient, doesn't waste bullet. In the later years, when you couldn't do that anymore, you could just lose your job and you'd be ostracized in your workplace and you would be tossed out of the party. I also wanted to just ask you briefly, you've, you've mentioned this in a few of your episodes, how much was the Soviet military really as much of a threat to the West as the West thought it was or as Western governments portrayed it as in terms of like, you know, the Soviet military was obviously large, but was it really that, uh, that effective and that high of quality? Depends. 90% of that was just humongous. Uh, tanks were good, but it was like um, Americans always had better tanks, but the Soviet people were trained. And for example, the, the, the things that mattered, the KGB, the GRU, uh, the Spetsnaz, those things were highly trained, vetted, qualified professionals. The professional part of the army was really, 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 really good. The common soldiers, uh, not so much. Mm-hmm. Same as today, by the way. Uh, the structure of the army hasn't changed a lot, in, in Russia at least. But you know what? I... And your listeners may hate me for this, but in the battle between U.S. Army Rangers or Green Berets or, I don't know, whatever elite Marine Corps you have, and Spetsnaz, I'd go with Spetsnaz. Hmm. Those guys were brutal. Uh, their training, their, the final part of their training included, you're, you're being thrown into a basement, just tiny, tiny room in the basement. There's a, there's a starved bloodhound in the basement. The floor of the basement is covered with pig's blood, up to your ankles. You are there barehanded. You have to kill the dog. You're welcome. Yeah, that's like something out of Sparta right there. Yeah, but that's what how USSR never had a lot of money, but they really didn't give a shit about your training needs. You yeah. died there, fine. Yeah. We're just going to write to your family, oh, uh, he committed some crime, he might, he's been transported somewhere else, whatever. What, what about the, the nuclear threat? I think you mentioned somewhere in one of your shows that the Soviet nuclear threat was not as, not as big of a deal as people thought it was because of like the quality of the missiles. And What's, what's your take on that? Would, would all those nuclear missiles have worked or were there uh, enough do you, of them? Do, do, do you know why, how, why and how Soviet started the space program? Because oh. their intercontinental ballistic missiles couldn't hit anything, but they could hit space. Right, right. Yeah, that was a good episode, by the way. I 
It was also all of my episodes start like this. I'm just sitting there and thinking, "Wow, I should make something, you know, happy," <laughs> and then it goes downhill from there. The people, some people are complaining that I'm too too grim. Some people are complaining that I'm not professional enough. But what they don't get is that this is how it works. Right. We lived in a terrible, grim, dark society, and we made fun of it. Yeah. This is it. This is the real deal. I, I'm not going to change. Yeah, no. No, I, I enjoy it. I appreciate it. Um, there was one more thing I wanted to ask you about, and I don't think you've covered this yet in much depth, but maybe you're, you're going to, or maybe there's something I've missed. And that is, could you give us just a little bit about what happened to kind of the life of regular people as the Soviet Union was collapsing and sort of in the immediate aftermath of the collapse? Like, how did this affect the average person? Extreme poverty, man. Like worse Extreme than it was before. Really. Because before, before everyone had some money, the good stuff was expensive, but there was just nothing, nothing in the stores. But, for example, um, my, mom, my mom used to earn in 1992, since when the capitalist system started, the prices just skyrocketed, salaries fell down. We didn't know how capitalism worked. There were a lot of people who put their money into fake banks which are essentially pyramid schemes promising up to 90% of return and imagine at one point in Latvia the average salary was about $20 a month and it was extreme poverty at, at the first years we're much better now so 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 basically so yeah it was it was it went better but the the really we had no inter, intermission period it was dreadful at the first time because Switching from one system to another was extremely painful. A lot of people lost their jobs, and it was it was really really difficult. It was it was worse than before for a while. It got better later, but it was it really went downhill from there. Um, I was growing up then as a kid, and I had to wear a single pair of shoes for three years. Yeah, so maybe that explains why lots of people still seem to be nostalgic over there yep. for, for the Soviet system because of how bad things went when that system fell apart. Yep, definitely. Because a lot of older people, like, they, they don't see the big picture. They don't. They just remember the nice things because of nostalgia. And then the obvious statement is like, oh, well, everyone had a job there. Yeah, but the job didn't matter. Right, right. And, and, and it wasn't nice. And a lot of people just couldn't adapt to capitalism. And I don't blame them. I don't blame them. Yeah. Right now, a lot of people kind of they want something in between, I suppose. I don't know. Well, Kristaps, I know you've got to run, but I very much appreciate your time. I appreciate you coming on my podcast. Um, it's a pretty long show, I think. Yeah, it'll be longer than my usual one. In the show notes for this episode, I'm going to link to your website. It's theeasternborder.lv, right? Yeah. Okay. I'm going to link to that and uh, encourage everybody to go check your show out if they're not if they haven't already and I'm going to as I usually do I'm going to put in a link to Dark Myths too. Is there oh, anything also, else you would like me to link to? Anything else you'd like to link me to? Uh my Patreon page. Okay. Cuz that would be nice. Truth to be told, I'm not a rich guy. This is my only day job at this moment and I have to pay for my PhD cuz we have two spots for paid people and both of them are from Spain at this moment. So uh yeah. Okay. Um, it, it's it's really sucky, but I'm trying my best here. I'm optimistic. I've learned that from you Americans. Okay. Is, the, is there anything else other than your podcast, any other uh, projects you've got going, anything else that you want to plug while you're here? I will be making a new podcast, which is going to be interesting. 
I'm doing my PhD and I will be doing a political podcast, a very different political podcast. I'll be looking at the political systems of various countries and specifically the history of and the impact of various political parties. It's going to be called People's Democratic Republic of Podcast. <laughs> cool time. And it's going to be like – I'm getting actually people from the countries, involved countries. Like my first podcast is going to be – about Israel from a Jewish guy, then it's going to be one about Iran, about the political history of that place a bit and the political section of all of this and how their parliament differs from the United States parliament because I'll be taking that as the default and I'll be looking going, – going through essentially the history of parties and their impact and comparing that one. And I'll be heading straight into controversy territory because my first show is going to be about about Israel. Oh, nice. But hey, I'm getting deathrits already. So uh, <laughs> that's about it. But but uh, I'm, I'm, I'll be posting that on Dark Myths, and it's going to be amazing. Okay, sounds great. Well, thanks again very Thank much. Thank you for, for having me so much. Really, I appreciate this a lot, and this conversation has been excellent. And uh, it was really nice to talk to another academical historian for once. It's like really amazing. <clears throat> we are so much better than those amateurs out there. Obviously, yeah, yeah we're serious. <laughs> Serious podcasters doing serious business, right? That's right. That's right. (laughs) Thank you for listening to the Dangerous History Podcast. Please check out the website, profcj.org. That's profcj.org. There you can find show notes for all the episodes, links, and other information. You can also email subscribe to the website by putting in your email in the little subscribe box off to the side there. And if you do that, you'll get an email notification every time something new is posted at the website. I promise you won't get any spam or anything uh, from me if you sign up there. You'll just get an announcement every time something new is posted on the website, which most of the time means a new episode, but occasionally is another sort of announcement or what have you. Please feel free to contact me with questions, comments, or other things. The email address is profcj at profcj.org. That's profcj at profcj.org. You can also connect with the show and follow it on social media, like us on Facebook, follow on Twitter, and you can find the show in podcast venues such as iTunes and Stitcher. You can subscribe there. Uh, By subscribing in iTunes, you'll help the show rise in the iTunes charts, and of course, that will help grow the show's audience. If you like this show and want to see it continue to keep going and to grow and to improve, There are a lot of ways you can help support it. One is simply to spread the word about the Dangerous History Podcast to anyone you think might appreciate it. You can also help spread the word by leaving ratings and reviews in podcast venues like iTunes and Stitcher. And of course, we very much need and appreciate financial support. You can go to profcj.org slash donate to see a whole bunch of different ways that you would help the show out financially. One, of course, is patreon.com slash profcj, where if you pledge to... Help out the show with a donation of at least $1 per episode. Remember, not only will I thank you by name in the next episode that I make, but you'll also have access to bonus episodes that I put there periodically that are available nowhere else. You can also make one-time or recurring donations via PayPal at profcj.org donate, and I have a Bitcoin address if you want to donate that way. And of course, a final way you can help out the show financially is when you do your Amazon shopping, Go to Amazon through any of my affiliate Amazon links on my website. And if you do that, the Dangerous History Podcast will get a small cut, a little commission from anything you purchase at no additional cost to you. Thanks again for listening. This has been another episode of the Dangerous History Podcast, helping you learn the past so you can understand the present and prepare for the future.